Blog Talk Radio. Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy, sound, and positive psychology therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. Audible.com has more than 425,000 audio books and spoken word audio products to choose from, so you can listen whenever and wherever you want. Just download the title you prefer, free of charge, and start listening when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. That's audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. Ah, I am so excited. (laughs) 
My guest tonight is Dr. Stuart Shanker, who is a distinguished research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology at York University. He is also the founder of the Merit Center LTD. That's M-E-H-R-I-T. He is a world-leading authority and best-selling author on the topic of self-regulation and child development and the former president of the Council of Early Child Development. He has authored, I believe it's eight books, including his most recent, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, which is the last in a trilogy and our topic for discussion today. So welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? Uh, I'm great. You know, after that intro song, I'm not sure there's anything I can say in the next hour. Oh, I'm sure we'll think of something. <laughs> well, that's just that's just an amazing song. I love it. I love it. It's 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 like a mantra to me now. <laughs> I just absolutely love it. You have to be grateful. That's the secret of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be for me now too. <laughs> yeah. You know, your book, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, it just came out last year, which to me was very timely. Everyone, I think, needs to yeah. read this book. I love the way you explain the principles that, that we have to embrace if we truly want to become a just society, and we'll get to those in a bit. But first, I want to recognize your book's dedication. It is to your Beshertha Ginny. And I found that to be yeah. beyond quite lovely. I, I just thought that was beautiful. Kudos to you for finding your Bescherta. And I'm quite sure she found her <laughs> Bescherta as well. <laughs> has she not? I'm sure she has. <laughs> yes. yes. I, must, I, must compliment, I must compliment you on your Yiddish. That was perfect. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I had, um, oh, Herb Fried was on the show. He actually wrote a book called, Beshert. And I was like, okay, how do you pronounce it? I need to know this. <laughs> and he told me. And it was a lovely book. <laughs> so now I know what it is and I and I just I'm in awe. I think it's <laughs> but to get back to your your the reason for this interview is your book, Reframed Self Reg for a Just Society. It is so inspirational. Yeah. It truly is. We you know, we're living in a very challenging time right now, unlike any of the world has ever yeah. seen before. And we have the pandemic, there's violence, there's yeah. racial discord, there's wars, there's yeah. unpredictable weather, the bullying and, and the lack of leadership that we've experienced over the past four years prior to January 20th. Um, you know, it, it gen, your book Reframed generally provides hope for the future that is somewhat bleak in appearance right now, if I can say that. So yay to bringing us hope. We need that. And thank you for sharing your <laughs> wisdom with all of us. <laughs> I wanted to start, if we can, with you yeah. telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your background, because I think that's important. Well, maybe I'll tell you a little story that is actually uh, the reason for the subtitle of the book. Um, I okay. am a Canadian. I'm a Canadian, and uh, I won a scholarship to go to Oxford. And uh, before I left, um, uh, a relative arranged for me to meet our then Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And so I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Trudeau, and uh, he had just been uh, giving these speeches about how Canada has to strive to become a just society. So I, you know, I'm a young guy, and I burst into his office, and I said, oh, Prime Minister, I can't tell you how much I am moved by your, by your whole message. And his answer to me was, he said, well, the secret to a society that wants to become just lies in education. So make sure you learn as much as you can at Oxford and then come back and teach it to all of us. And that's really mm -hmm. stuck in my mm -hmm. mind ever since. Um, and like you, I feel these are very bleak times, but there is reason for hope. And that's what this is all about. Um, it's trying to create that sense of hope in individuals and in communities and finally in our society as a whole. You know, it's funny that you should bring that story up because that was actually my next question, because you were 16 years old when you attended that political rally, according yes. to your book. And, yes. you know, it, it was about um, – Equality of opportunity is ensured and individuals are permitted to fulfill themselves in a fashion they judge best. And you, you said that you walked away energized, which is great, 
But then you stayed up all night writing a manifesto entitled, How Does a Society <laughs> Become Just? Now, you were 16, yeah. and I dare say that's not typical of teenage boys, you know, but that speech really drove your passion. That had to be the yes. impetus for the work that you do today. Ah, yes. Yes, yes, it was. Yes. So um, looking back on it, um, I feel a little bit embarrassed. Uh, it was incredible chutzpah. That is another Yiddish word for tonight. Um, but I'll tell you what I thought back then. Um, I had already started reading uh, political philosophy, and I thought it was missing the point, and I thought Trudeau was missing the point. Um, and what I thought back then was they were talking about freedom, uh, you know, this wonderful state where you can choose. That was the classic Enlightenment definition of freedom, being able to choose. But I grew up uh, in an area where none of the people around me really had that freedom. They weren't free to choose. They were struggling to get by day to day. And I saw mm. an awful lot of addiction, and they weren't free. Uh, and I saw a lot of depression. And someone who's depressed isn't free to say, well, I'm going to be in a good mood today. And I thought, right. there's something wrong with this. There's, there's, there's some hidden depth to freedom that if we don't understand it, we won't become free and we won't become a just society. So when I went to Oxford, they arranged for me to uh, have as my moral tutor. If you know anything about Oxford, you'll know that that's, that's a typical Oxford thing, that you have to have a moral tutor. Uh, mine was a guy called yeah. Isaiah Berlin. Uh, Isaiah was the great um, political philosopher of our times, uh, especially when it came to liberty and freedom. And so in our very first session, I told him what I just told you. And again, this is a typical Oxford thing. He said to me, he said, that's a wonderful idea, but you've got to do some studying now. Um, and he suggested, uh, which changed my life, he suggested, why don't you start and get a foundation in neuroscience and psychology? Um, and that's really what led to the book. Um, and you know, dare I say it, uh, my alternative to the enlightened view, enlightenment view of freedom. Um, the short version is, um, and this is uh, deeply ironic, uh, my theory is grounded in something called homeostasis. And it's the same, T-Love, it's the mm -hmm. same as what you do. I mean, you and I are on the same wavelength here. So yeah. homeostasis, as a theory, it was invented in the middle of the 19th century by a Frenchman called Claude Bernard. And he has this incredible statement. It was in 1865 he said it. He said, to be in homeostasis is the foundation of freedom. And that was a wow for me when I read it. Um, what he's saying is what makes us free is when we are in some sort of balanced state. Uh, now, then I had to spend the next 20 years trying to figure out what the hell does balance mean. But the <laughs> idea is <laughs> the idea itself and, and, and look, you know, you and I, we can trace this as far back as you want to go. Um, and we can go back 3,000 years, 5,000 years, but there is something new today. There, is, there has been a revolution in neuroscience, which is transforming our understanding of why we act the way we do, why we see the craziness that we see, and what we need to do to become free. And that's pretty much the that's pretty much the main message of the book yeah and you know i want to go back to something you said that you're a little embarrassed and I, you have absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about uh you know as a 16 year old boy do i mean this is where the genius comes in this is where and i don't know about you but a lot of the people i know i have friends who are having babies and such and those kids are coming in a lot smarter so much smarter yeah. and so much more evolved yeah. if i can use that term you know, yeah. they, and they're trying, try, even through the being, pandemic, we're trying to be a professor. No, thank you. It was brutal. <laughs> I'm sure it is because you're trying to teach. And, you know, in every instance, I believe you're the teacher and you're the student. But when the student becomes, and you're supposed to be the teacher, more of a teacher, it's like, okay, maybe it's time to just quit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I gave up trying to catch up. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're catching up, and they're, you know, and they're so much younger. Oh, my goodness. What a profound experience, though, too, and quite an accomplishment to go to Oxford University and do your work there. I mean, that is just really, that is something huge to be proud of. Um. I'll tell you something else that's really funny. I didn't tell this in the book. I I didn't want to come back. Um, I I was offered, I I had become a fellow at Oxford. And uh, Trudeau, um, Trudeau had stayed in touch, and he did this. Uh, he did this uh, tour of England, and he came to Oxford and invited me to dinner. The first thing he says to me is, so when are you coming back to Canada? And I seriously <laughs> was just about to accept this job. And he said, you know that if you don't come back, you're going to have to pay back all those loans you got, and I will make sure that you have to pay them back. He was joking, but... Um, <laughs> You never know. <laughs> but, you know, I did feel, you know, I mean, what he was trying to say to me is, you know, you have a duty to your country. And and it worked. Mm. I mean, I came home to my wife and I said, we got to go back. Yeah. Yeah. And and thank God you did, you know. Yeah. I mean, see, he saw in I, you what you I, weren't seeing in yourself. Well, I mean, uh, it's an interesting point, too, because at Oxford, uh, you can't cross the point. And um, uh, the university who wanted to hire me uh, said, what would it take for you to come to this university? And I said, if I could be cross-appointed, um, teaching in two faculties, mm. philosophy and psychology. And uh, truly, that was, uh, that was a game changer for me. Um, teaching psychology, you learn how the field sees problems. And philosophers and psychologists actually see the world very differently. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is find that sweet spot where they can talk to each other. Yes. And I think it's getting close. I think it's getting very close. I do, too. I do, too. I agree with you. Yeah. I I really do agree with you. It's all – it ends up being all – let's face it. It's just one big, you know, stew, and it's a matter of looking at the ingredients and seeing how they fit well together. And, And they do blend. Everything blends in together. You just have to figure out how. And make the best of it. You know, and I think there are people working you know, on that. Uh, I was going to I was going to respond with that very point. Um, one of the big influences on me back in the '90s was a, a guy called Gilbert Gottlieb. Um, he was a professor down at UNC, and um, he created a, a field, a new theory of genetics. Um, and uh, the essence of his point is that this idea that it's either nature or it's nurture. It's so 19th century. Um, it's a synthesis. And in fact, his most famous book is called The Nature Nurture Synthesis. And so uh, we created a think tank about um, guys that had been influenced by Gottlieb. And it was incredible. We had, I, I can't remember the number now, but probably at least a dozen, maybe 15 different sciences that were all thinking along the same lines. It's called dynamic systems. And, and so what we're seeing today is this younger generation of academics that have been trained in this. Um, this is a whole new ball game now. And uh, what's really exciting about it is it's not theory for the sake of theory. This is, this is driven by either, you know, I, I told all my students when they had the, an assignment, if they had to write something at the end of it, you have to answer one question. And the question is, so what? And if you can't answer that question, I don't want to see what you wrote. And that's where we are oh. today. That, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and what's exciting for me is that, oh, my God, we can it's not just a case of saying something inspirational to give people hope. We can actually change trajectories now. This is huge. Or by changing mm-hmm. trajectories, I mean what you're doing with your foundation. Um, so with this, with the Soji Huggins, Soji Huggles, yep. (laughs) Sorry, Soji Huggles. Um, So here what you're doing is you're looking at underprivileged kids who, you know, really need that that helping hand. Well, uh, we have an organization now that spans Canada, and actually we're going around the world now, and we're working with those kids. And it's unbelievable to see what can happen when you uh, hear a child truly hear a child listen, and then um, begin to change that trajectory. You see a different kid. And so our motto is 
there's no such thing as a bad kid. And I can tell you right now, I've seen tens of thousands of children. I've never seen a bad kid, ever. There is no such yep. thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's one of your principles. And the, and the other yeah. principle you, uh, you, you touched on was the trajectories. So there is no such thing as a bad, lazy, or stupid kid, as you wrote in your book. And nope. I believe that's true because I think there are circumstances that, that people, I, I don't know, sometimes I think the parents don't want to discipline because they want to be their friends. And so then they label children. I think there's too much labeling of kids right now, you know, and yeah, so agree. you just push them aside. Um, it's sad. It's really sad. But uh, yeah, there is no such thing as a bad, lazy, or stupid kid. And, and these three principles that you write about in your book, as you say, uh, the principles that show us how to build a compassionate society, one mind at a time, these are the the very foundation to our becoming a just society. And how how do we get people to change to know that there is no such thing as a bad, lazy, or stupid kid? I, I think it's, I, I think it's, prevalent that people just label children and just decide that's what it is. And then their trajectory doesn't change in school because, well, that's a bad kid or that's a labeled kid. So they're going to go a different route than this other child who may be, you know, considered smarter or, or, or they're quiet. And so they're a learner when in fact they're not, how do we, how do we make that change? How do we shift that? Okay. So you're asking, you realize you're asking a real big question, right? Yeah, um, so, I do. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I spent uh, many years uh, working under and for someone who was um, really trying at the, at the systemic level, trying to change government, trying to, to inform uh, policy leaders. And I was going up to Ottawa, which is where our cop, like uh, Washington, I was going up to Ottawa once a month, and I was presenting to – um, uh, senators and, and our MPs, and I really felt that I was um, spinning my wheels. So we, when we created uh, our organization that you mentioned, Parent Center, we decided we we're going to use a very different approach, um, and we're going to do it bottom up. And so what we're going to do is we're going to target two groups: one of them parents, and the other one educators, and. Uh, Today, um, I mean, you have to go on our website to get the full data, but I mean, we are, we have thousands and thousands of parents and we have thousands and thousands of educators and school boards and districts. Why? Um, And there's a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, um, when you do this this method that we developed, uh, it has a huge benefit for you as a parent or you as an educator. And that's really, uh, that's really what, I think caused this 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 bushfire. Um, people come to it because you know maybe they came because you know they're worried about this kid, uh, but then um, they find oh my god, um, this I mean I have been told this over and over. Uh, this is really you're, this is really helping me. So that's a key factor. Mm-hmm. Now let's look at the kid. Um, reframed. Um, has a slightly different uh, focus than the uh, first two books in the trilogy. Uh, This one I'm really looking at um, what's called the domain of cognitive stress. And um, people find that hard to understand, but essentially uh, math is your best example of a cognitive stress. Uh, We are seeing, uh, this was our last data, uh, 40% of kids by the time they're in grade six um, are math phobic. I mean, like it's called high math anxiety. Probably much worse mm-hmm. today because of the pandemic. So let's say half of all our kids can't hack math. Uh, and this has been treated. This has been seen as well. You know, it's a lack of motivation, or they're lazy, or they don't want to make the effort. But yep. the neuroscience uh, that we built on um, tells a very different story. And the story that it tells is that for various reasons that we can, we can actually identify now, uh, this kid uh, finds math an excessively high stress. Now, for me, that's music in my ears, because as soon as I hear that, I know that if a child is overstressed, there are things I can do to reduce that stress load. 
So what we do is we try to figure out why is mass such a stress? Um, what can we do to, uh, and I'll come back to this later, I think, tonight, because it's what you do. Uh, what can we do to help that kid restore? Restoration is the big thing. What we have found is that we can take these kids that people said, well, he's just not working hard enough. But what the neuroscience tells us is he's working way too hard. If you can peer, yeah. like, you know, it's like with a car. If you can open up the bonnet, you, know, you don't call it a bonnet in the U.S., right? Open up the hood um, and look at the yep. motor. What you <laughs> find is his heart's beating like crazy. His brain has got these rapid, big waves. Um, he's, he's, his blood pressure's gone up. His breathing's gone up. He is burning all of his energy, energy that he needs in order to learn math. So what we start to do is we figure out, you know, what's the big deal here? What are the stresses? And, and it turns out it has something to do with uh, a part of the brain that processes mathematical information that we can repair now, that we can strengthen. We have fun ways of doing it. Over and over, we take this kid who was labeled lazy or unmotivated, won't make the effort, and we show it had nothing to do with that, that he had what, what the great Mel Levine called output failure. Um, he was overstressed. And if I can figure out what the stresses are and figure out strategies to, to mitigate that stress, to help that child manage stress in a productive way, I see a whole new kid. And that kid's going to blow you away. And that's happened over and over. So parents, teachers, see this kid that they, that they did label. You were absolutely right. They see the kid that they labeled, and all of a sudden they think, oh, my God. What's happening here? Well, we can do that now. I can do that for every kid. And so, um, you know, we rely now on you, people like you, to get this message out. It's not just a case of yeah. telling the parents who are listening to this or teachers you could have hope. Here's how we can actually do it. We have strategies to do this, and we can always do it. So that's, a, for me, that's yeah. what this I is all about. It is. And, and to me, in reading the book and seeing, you know, how it could work for children, uh, that's where it has to start. And the benefit yep. is that it, it starts there, but the parents and the teachers who can, are benefiting by it and can then turn around and teach it as well, and therefore it spreads further so that there won't be as many children. Children shouldn't be stressed out. Children aren't allowed to have a childhood. That's the problem, I think, is that yeah, they're, I you agree. know. I agree. So many parents, yeah, so many parents want their kids to, to live through, they living through them vicariously. You know, I was a soccer player, so my kid has to be. What if your kid wants I to be a ballerina? I agree with what that, too. You, I agree. you know, I mean, come on. Like, you had your life. It's their turn. You brought them into this world. They're your most precious gift. Allow them to utilize the gifts that they came in with and present them to the world without you know, imposing your gifts on them that maybe you didn't present to the world that well, and now you're trying to use your child. I see that a lot, and and it's sad because you want your kid to be, I would think, better than you. I would, I would think all parents would be feeling like you want your kid to do better than you. You want them to have more than you, but not in the way that parents right now are spoiling children. They get everything they want, no questions asked, and then the kids – because they've never failed or because they were given things, they go off to college and now we have suicide rates that are high and have gotten higher over the, actually the suicide rates the in the roof. United States through, have gotten higher. Through the roof. Yeah, through the through roof. The roof. It, between 10 and 14 year olds. I mean, 10 and 14. You're 10. Yeah. Where's your childhood? Where's the, where's okay, the so, imagination? I don't, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so let me give, um, let me give you, a neuroscience response to what you're saying. Um, and let me preface it by saying that I could not say any better than you just did what I think is going on. Uh, mm. Now, you mentioned to me before we came on the air that you were staggered by the absolute explosion that we're seeing of mental health disorders in children and teens. Uh, and yes. um, it's hard for us to quantify right now. Um, it could be as high as 300%. Um, but something mm. very serious has happened. Now, we know why. So uh, we know that the pandemic's a big stress. 
uh, and we know that, um, uh, you know, you gave me a list. I can't remember if it was on the show or not. You know, uh, global warming, racial conflict, these, uh, the, poli- yep. the politics of your, of your country. These are huge stresses, and it filters down onto children. Uh, plus, yes. uh, we know that the child's brain needs uh, – the, the brain goes through a transition around the age of uh, 10 where it needs peer brains to, to self-regulate. Okay. Now, um, the question I get asked is, um, what am I supposed to do? I can't, uh, you know, I can't, I can't bubble wrap my kid, which is what you're hinting at here. Um, I can't say mm-hmm. to, the, to my child, uh, I can't say to my child, well, you know, uh, the pandemic's going to be over soon or, you know, all, you know, wishful thinking. Um, so, and even before this happened, we've been tracking this for 20 years now. Even before this happened, the rates have been climbing exponentially since around the middle of the 90s. Um, so what am I supposed to do? Now, here's what I think has been happening. Um, okay, the neuroscience is that when we use a word, when you and I use a word like stress, what we're talking about mm-hmm. is how uh, the brain has to burn energy in order to deal with the stress. Sometimes that's really important, and that was your point about not bubble wrapping them. You know, children, Uh teens, they need stress. They need the stress in order to get aroused, to to have goals. This is an important part of of happiness. Um, The problem is when there's excessive stress. And... So we have this method, and I know you don't want to talk about it tonight, so I won't, but I'll just tell you the, the, the upshot of it. Um, it's a five-step method, which is leading up to something called restoration, which is actually a biological term, and it refers to what the body has to do in order to replenish energy reserves, repair damaged cells, uh, repair the immune system, um, get the digestive system working. So restoration, um, for scientists, they call it restoration and repair. Now, mm-hmm. what we're seeing happen, I think, over the last two years is that stress loads have clearly uh, increased dramatically. And what hasn't happened is restoration. Restoration is the key to being able to deal with, to recover from whatever the stresses that you have in life. What are kids doing instead of restoring? Well, um, we live in a culture where there are endless, endless ways to get a shot of dopamine. Now, if your listeners don't know, dopamine is the brain's little way of giving us a bit of a buzz, getting us to go after yep. something, keeping us going. So you can get a dopamine shot from opening a, a, a bag of potato chips. That bag of potato chips has mm-hmm. actually been designed to give you a shot of dopamine. So what's happening mm-hmm. is in the midst of this crisis, um, instead of restoring, kids are, uh, they are uh, searching and <coughs> finding more and more ways to get that shot of dopamine. Maybe it's a video, video game or, or social media or some junk food. So um, the problem then becomes compounded. How do I get my kid to restore, to get into that state? Well, the first step, the critical step, and again, this is your territory, not mine, is we got to get that kid calm. And you are seeing a generation of children and teens who do not know what calmness feels like, do not know what it no, feels like don't. to have a quiet mind. If they can't get calm, they won't get to the fifth step of self-rake, the restoring step. So I think that's what's happened here, uh, and I think the way we, I think the way we respond to the crisis, is we figure out, okay, what do I have to do to get my kid, how whatever their age, and it could be your 24-year-old. I got a 19-year-old, and I'm having this discussion with him right after I finish tonight. What do I have <laughs> to do with my? What what do I, what what? <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you've heard that. <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> okay, so so 
what are my what's my strategy to get my kid to actually experience calm now then i'm going to go to my fifth step and now i got to figure out and here we'll come to someone like you and say okay this this kid's not restoring that system mm. that parasympathetic system is right. is it's lost all its elasticity it's been overused and abused i've got to repair the very system for for repairing but the but the the wonderful thing is we can do it and you know what we can do it at any point in the lifespan we can do it with the elderly we're doing it with the elderly there's no point at which mm-hmm. this can't be done but you're absolutely right what you said uh, our focus is let's get them when they're young Let's teach them when they're young what it feels like to have them, what's called embodied self-awareness, and then figure out what helps this child restore. And every kid is different. So I can't say, you know, okay, mom and dad, here's what you got to do. You got to have your kid, you got to have your kid do 15 minutes of belly breathing. Well, I happen to love belly breathing, and I'll do it three or four times every day. But I've mm-hmm. got, uh, well, let's take my son as an example. There's no way I'm getting him to belly breathe. It would make him totally nuts. What he does like to do, he's a hockey player. He likes to shoot pucks at mom's garage. Not so good for mom, really good for my son. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You got to pick your priority. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, with the garage door. (laughs) You know? Yeah, you know, you can always buy a new garage door. You can't buy, you know, you can't buy a new kid. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you. I do a lot of breath work with children. Um, nostril breathing yeah. is, and there are many different forms of that that really help. And I do that every day uh, because, to me, that's an immediate calm. It changes your heart rate variability. Uh, your blood yeah, pressure goes it down. Does, it's and, a, it's it does, a, and it really does do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's definitely science behind this. When I got into this work, I needed the science behind all of it or I wouldn't have gotten into it. And and I come at it from a scientific standpoint because it is important. Meditation, yoga, um, there are so many things. And what's interesting is that a lot more people are enrolling their children in yoga to the point where before school programs – they're doing yoga and meditation. And, and I think that's wonderful because these are little people. They're yes. seven and eight years old that I've gone in and, yes. you know, and they like it and, uh, yes. and they're into it and they can, they can do it really well. So these are tools that you can take with you wherever you go. You know, you have your nostrils with you. You have your hands with you. You can yes. do alternate nostril breathing. Nobody knows this. You can sit in your car and you have it for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, it is very calming and it can take you down. But I think one of the things that's really difficult for kids today, I don't see a lot of kids outside. I don't see a lot of, unless they're nope. playing sports, nope. you know, at a stadium nope. or whatever, but they're not playing in dirt. They're not riding bicycles or yep. big wheels or anything like that. They're on their gadgets. And I know that people, I just had to ask somebody today, instead of coming in tomorrow at 10, I have an 11 o'clock Zoom call. Can you come in at 9.45 or 9.30? And she said, sure, next time text me. And I emailed her back and I said, I'm sorry, I don't text. I don't have one of those phones. And people are always laughing at me. <laughs> and they say, why don't you text? You don't text? And I said, no, there's nobody I need to be in touch with 24-7, 365. There truly is not. And when people come in and they want energy therapy or sound therapy or talk therapy, whatever it is they're coming in for, it's always they're overwhelmed by the gadgets and the children are picking up on that. And I know people who have bought their children an iPhone and the kids are five or six years old. And I don't understand why a five or six year old needs an iPhone. I don't understand it at all. And and I think, wow, okay. (laughs) um, That's a pretty expensive toy that they don't yet know how to use. And, Yes. Can I give you some science for everything you just said? Yeah. A little bit of science. Okay. So let's start with the breathing. Okay. So how come? Mm-hmm. Why does it work? And so we have uh, the second biggest nerve in the human body. It's called the vagus. And you alluded to it about 10 yep. minutes ago when you talked about HRV. Yep, vagus nerve. And so the vagus, yep. the vagus connects, um, it connects our breathing to our heart. And when you do the breathing exercise, the vagus is sending a message to your heart. And the message is, I have enough oxygen. I don't need more. That's why the heart calms down. Now, stop and think mm-hmm. for a second. How much, how much glucose, uh, how much glucose uh, your kid is burning 
if their heart rate, and by the way, we are shocked when we, every kid that we work with in our clinic, uh, we test heart rate. And we're shocked by resting heart rates. Resting heart rates today, we're seeing resting heart rates in the 90s in a child. We want to see that resting heart rate in the 70s. So, um, mm-hmm. okay, so that leads me to the second point that you made. Um, why is it such a big deal to, why is it such a big deal to be outside? Why, why did people like you and I constantly harp on, you know, the, the, uh, the nature uh, deficit hypothesis, whatever you call that? Um, mm-hmm. And so being aware of what's going on inside yourself is the sort of mirror image of being, being aware of what's going on around you. So we distinguish, um, uh, scientifically, we'll distinguish between interoception, knowing what's going on inside you, and extraception, knowing what's going on around you. And I used to do this thing where I had kids, I live on an island, uh, and I used to have, have kids come, troubled, uh, troubled teens come, uh, and spend a couple of days on the island. We have a little um, cottage on it, uh, as well as a house. And it was astonishing to me that they didn't hear or see anything. And in fact, uh, we had to institute the rule that you're talking about, which was no cell phones. Um, this is going to mm-hmm. be, you know, we're going to have two or three days um, where we're just going to, and so within a, a relatively quick uh, period, they would start to identify, and I would teach them, you know, this bird call is that such and such a bird. Let's go find the bird. Um, and, and as they tuned in to the sounds around them or the smell, the smell of the water, the smell of the air, or the feel of the breeze on your skin, they began to be in touch with themselves. Now, this is a huge point. Another thing we're seeing with these kids, these kids who spend all of their time sitting in a chair or lying on their bed, is they are not developing the systems that you work on that they need to develop to be aware of their body moving through space. And their body becomes, it becomes a threat. The body itself is a source of anxiety. We do a very simple test with our, with the kids that we work with. Uh, We had um, at the university, so we had a steep flight of stairs and the uh, exercise was walk down the middle of the stairs without touching the rail. We could tell within one or two steps, that this kid had none of the things you work on, proprioception, the kinesthetic awareness. They didn't have it. They're, they didn't feel their body. And so we literally would do exercises with them. Our occupational therapists would do exercises with them that we would do with an infant or a toddler, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so catching a ball, uh, walking along a line, just to get them in touch with their body. So when you and I talk about this stuff, this is a, this is a, we're talk we're calling for a major um, transformation in how we look at raising a healthy child. Now, the point you made at the very beginning is always at the top of my mind. What do I want for my kid? What do I want for my kids? I want them to be happy and healthy. That's that's it. Right. Um, and the things that you warned about. You warn because they do not make a child happy, and they certainly don't make the kid healthy. Do I know? Now, I've I've got a 16-year-old who is now doing very physical labor, and I've never seen her happier. Um, uh, I'm just just, uh, paraphrasing what you said. But I think think that I think we're all ready for this. We see what's happening. We hear the data. And we know we've got to do something different. Now's the time. I agree. I think now is the time, especially since it was exponentially, yeah. I, I don't, increasing over the pandemic. Good word. You know? Yeah, it's a good word. And, yeah, yeah um, because it's hard now. And it's what's really sad around here in the U.S. is budget cuts with schools, and one of the things that they're cutting is the school psychology. And so clinicians have been either fired or hours have been brought down to, you know, um, 20 hours a week instead of 40, and you have 800 kids in one school and three people to handle it all. It's just not going to work. 
You know, everybody has to be on board. And that includes, unfortunately, the teachers, too. And they're stressed out because of the way that they've had to teach. So I know this is the third in the trilogy, but your other books definitely speak to the parents and to the and to the teachers to help them. Um, Yes. And I just look at all that and and I think, you know, how how is this going to really pan out? Because this pandemic isn't over. It's, It's really not even near being over. And everybody wants it to be over, but, you know, we still have to be compliant to get over it. <laughs> and, and that's hard right there. How do, you, how do you explain to kids you still have to wear a mask even though, you know, if you're over the age of 12, you were vaccinated. You, you can still be a carrier. There's so much that goes into this. We just don't know enough. And the stresses that are out there for some of these kids starts within the family, too. I mean, I've heard children say, I don't know if mom and dad's going to have a job, you know, um, Yes. They got laid off, businesses closed. They're worried about adult problems that they ought not to have to worry about. That's not their function. They're children. They're supposed to be able to be children. And it's hard for everybody to, to keep that because everybody wants to be, you know, my kid, I want it to be the best. I want my kid to be the greatest whatever player or the greatest academic or the greatest at whatever the job is. And they push and they push and they push. And that's not that's not healthy for the kids. They need to have the childhood. They need to have the imagination. They need to be able to be out and be free and do what they want to do themselves because that's their, that's their birthright. And I, I think it's really hard that children don't, they're not out in nature a lot. They don't know things in nature. They, they don't walk around and look at things and say, oh, look at that bug or look at that bird or look at the chip. I mean, I still go out and feed my chipmunks and feed the squirrels and the birds and, and do everything because <laughs> they were here before, they were here first, you know, <laughs> they were here first. So they okay, get the so, land before uh, I do, you know? <laughs> uh, okay. So there's, again, there's an awful lot of richness in what you're saying. Um, um, let me, um, first of all, I mean, ironically, just yesterday I was asked if I would join a small panel to talk to your um, Secretary of State for Education. Uh, I never do this, and I've agreed. Ah, good. Uh, be- yeah, well, I think that uh, I have to be careful how I say this. Can I just say, uh-oh, <laughs> I mean, this is really scary yeah. stuff, what's going on. All right. Yep. Now, yep. so I look at, um, you know, so we talk about, uh, so we'll say something like that principle, you know, that uh, there's no such thing as a bad, lazy, or stupid kid, or, um, or, uh, that we can always change a trajectory. And, uh, right. and um, I, the very first time I talked about this, I was talking to 5,000 kindergarten teachers uh, at a big venue in Toronto. And uh, as I'm explaining it, there's this little voice that yells out from the back, well, I got a bad kid, and his dad was a bad guy, and his grandfather was a bad guy. Oh, my goodness. So... <laughs> <laughs> laughing. But um, for me, like, I don't get threatened or any, ever. But for me, I was just curious. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I said, I, I, I'd love to meet the kid. Um, and um, uh, it turned out that uh, I got to meet the kid. And uh, the kid had some really hypersensory sensitivities. Um, and uh, a hypersensitivity to, say, smell or noise or crowds, uh, that's a huge stress for a little guy. And these are mm-hmm. the kinds of things that are passed down through generations. Um, and, um, you know, if you stop to think about it, oh, my goodness, you know, if we see him as a bad kid, I guess that's what happened to his dad and his grandfather, um, when really what they needed was, and now we have lots of techniques that we use for kids with these hypersensitivities. So as I was explaining, so I, I went back and I gave another talk to that teacher's school with her there trying to explain all this. And she said something, and it made me realize what the real, um, uh, I don't know, culprit is. And I think this is really relevant to your society, to the U.S., um, in science, uh, nobody that I know, nobody I work with believes in genetic determinism. The idea that a child's intelligence um, is somehow 
fixed in their genes, how, how smart they could be. Uh, nobody thinks like that anymore. We, genes don't work like that. Um, they mm-hmm. work at a very, very low level. Um, but there is this attitude amongst a certain section of our society that thinks, well, maybe, maybe that's true, but some kids or some groups are born without, with a lesser ability to make an effort. They're lazy. They lack motivation. And my job is to, my job is to fire them up. My job is to, um, you know, here's the bar. And if you don't, if you don't meet it, then you'll suffer the consequences because you didn't try hard enough. That's the point of the, I can't remember what chapter it is. I think it's chapter eight. So, um, but then what we see when we come in, so we do an awful lot of work with First Nations in Canada. And these, these are kids that, that really have been overstressed. And I loved what you said a second ago. You know, they've got all their kids' stresses plus the stresses of what's happening to mom and dad or their, their, or their, whole, their whole village. And yep. um, so when we start to work with that child, so now what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to change the trajectory. But it starts with me. It starts with how I see the kid. It starts with, with recognizing this has nothing to do with, with genetics. There's no such thing as a genetic, uh, a genetic potential for effort or for intelligence. What there is, what all kids have, is a susceptibility to stress. And oh my God, right. the stresses on this, the stresses on the on these kids that you're working with with your foundation, these stresses are through the roof. Now, what we can do is, but we can change that. You and I can, and you're changing it through the foundation. Um, I love the mm-hmm. pictures on your foundation, the pictures of the kids in the in the school bus smiling. That's you know uh, mm-hmm. we get asked all the time, how do I know, how do I know if what I'm doing is actually changing the trajectory? And the answer is, is the kid smiling yet? When that kid starts right. to smile, you know you've hit, you know you've, you're on the right track. But now we have to recognize as a society that there is, you know, there's something called the social gradient, uh, which is the difference between rich and poor, and it corresponds almost perfectly with a stress gradient. Uh, yes. The lower the income, the higher the stress. And so yep. um, what I can do is, so how can I help these kids? Well, I can help them by helping their teachers. So what I'm going to do is, and that's how we do it. So we come in and we work with the educators. Um, first we start with the educators, then we'll go for the parents. Uh, teaching them to recognize, and this is like, I don't know if this is in reframe, but one of our fundamental distinctions is between misbehavior and stress behavior. So what we're going to reframe is a child's behavior. Before we jump to the assumption that it's a misbe- that he's misbehaving, we have to ask ourselves: Is it stress behavior? Well, what what are the signs of stress behavior? Well, there are lots. We can hear stress behavior in their tone of voice. We can see it in their facial complexion. We can watch their gestures. There's all these. Ki- there's all these signals of when a child is overstressed. If you punish a child for stress behavior, you have just magnified that stress tenfold. What we have to do if it's stress behavior is turn off the alarm. There's a little alarm that, it, that when it's hyper aroused, it starts, it starts to scream, you know, fire, fire, fire. So the first thing we're going to do for that child is we're going to, we're going to, we're going to reduce the, hyperarousal of the amygdala. And now what's happening is now, now that child can start to tell us, but it all comes back to reframing. It all comes back to reframing. Uh, okay, so let me just say one last thing about this. How do you teach this? Uh, we tell our educators, we're going to start with a very simple principle. When the kid does something that's making you a little nuts, you're going to ask yourself, why <laughs> And why now? And what that does is it interrupts your own brain response. Um, we can, if a child's hyperaroused, our, our own brain, our own limbic system becomes very instantly hyperaroused. By asking why, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're blocking that limbic resonance, it's called. And now 
what we can start to do is we can start to look at this kid and, you know, maybe what this kid needs is he just needs a hug. Maybe what this kid needs yeah. is some noise. Uh, or, you know, we do this thing where we put little cardboard um, carols on their desk to block out if the child is very sensitive to, to movement or noise, whatever. We can block it out for, for what, 30 cents. There's all these techniques mm-hmm. that don't cost much. Um, but the key, right. the key is the reframing. The key is the reframing and the cost savings down the road to not have to have all of these huge. school psychologists is huge. amazing. If you get it. Huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. So good luck with Anthony Binken, our secretary of state. <laughs> I hope you're able to get through. <laughs> I really am. You have somebody who's married to the president who is really going to, who is receptive to this. So yes. maybe this is the time. Yes. Yes, I believe that as well. She certainly will be. <laughs> so maybe she can talk to Anthony and you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> but two other things before we need to go, because we're getting close to the top of the hour. The last line of the last chapter of your book is, is a motto that you would like to see over every doorway of every school. And that motto reads, embrace hope, all ye who enter here. I think that speaks loudly to the message of your book. It, it certainly came across very clearly in to me, and it works so very well, as to me, it was like the underlying common thread of the principles in the book, and, and it made a lasting impression, I think it will make a lasting impression on all readers, at least it did for this reader, so, you know, well done. <laughs> if you could get this hand into every student, every teacher, this world would change one mind, and it's simple if people just do it, and that, I think, is the hardest part. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, your... Your center, M-E-H-R-I-T, Merit Center, your organization is dedicated to understanding how we all respond to stress in the same way. We thrive when it's positive. We struggle when it's excessive. So your website is selfreg.ca. So I'm going to spell that out for our listeners, S-E-L-F as in Frank, dash R-E-G dot C-A. And listeners, please write that down so you can visit the site. You're going to find a plethora of information. There's events, classes offered. There's so many resources that will help you as a parent, a teacher, a person in the world. So much help to everyone. And, again, that's self-reg.ca. I really hope you all go to that and and read everything you can about it because it it would behoove you to do that to help the children of the world. So, Dr. Shanker, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners I have a final question. Is that as good? Uh, sure. Who, who, who was the singer of that opening song? Um. Oh. Okay. Art Garfunkel. I hope I have this right. Yeah. Art Garfunkel. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, I'm going to download that. It might have now, been Paul Simon, I, but I think it's Art Garfunkel. No, that was <laughs> one Paul or Simon. the other. <laughs> I recognize Paul Simon. <laughs> okay, then it was Art okay, Garfunkel. I, <laughs> okay, I, all I can tell you at the end of today is I have not just enjoyed this, but learned from this, and I hope I hope everybody feels the same way. Um, with, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. <laughs> with insight, with insight comes hope. Okay, and I yes. feel it, and I want them to feel it too. And and that couldn't have wrapped up the show any better, you know. I um. I just, I love talking to you. I'd love to have you back again if you so choose, and you can let me know later. You don't have to say on air. <laughs> I won't, I won't put you through that. <laughs> or me. <laughs> but okay, listeners, we need, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please send the link to the show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so that they can learn and grow and make the world a better place for everyone. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me and my work or to schedule a remote energy therapy session of your choice, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need 100%. We're run solely by volunteers 
taxpayers. There are no salaries, no stipends, no compensation of any kind to anyone. Every penny goes toward meals, coats, health care, whatever is needed so that all children have a chance for a good life. And we just started a new mental health initiative to provide help to so many children who are not receiving the mental health care that they desperately need. Particularly now, the pandemic has triggered a an incredible rise in children's emergency room visits for mental health. And many of these kids, despite what everyone believes, do not have health care that covers mental health issues. And this is a huge undertaking for a very real and widespread issue. So we can't do it alone. With your help, we can ensure children will get the care they need. And, and I'm going to say, too, go to the Merit Center, M-E-H-R-I-T, again, that's M-E-H-R-I-T, um, center, and you'll find that website, self-reg, self-reg.ca, and check that out as well, because it is my understanding that there are 700 people on the planet thus far who have paid $250,000 for a ticket to ride 11 minutes into space. That is discretionary money like I've never heard of before, and it's not helping anyone except the people who want to go for a thrill ride. So they're not scientists. They're not doing anything. They're just going out there. You can put money to good use if you have discretionary money to help kids who might be part of the program to help get us into space where we need to be in years to come so think about that as you go to the two websites and please follow us on twitter at nrg aware radio and at soji huggles and while you're in your social media accounts please be sure to like us on facebook soji huggles children's foundation i am your host t love here at energy awareness radio intending you and yours a most enjoyable week may you all stay healthy and safe remember living from your heart is quite easy you need only give thanks to do so Take care and stay well.